this morning we're going to start studying through a new book of the Bible. We're going to start studying through the book of Colossians. And uh, since we're going to be going verse by verse through a book for the next several months, it's always great, even in your own personal study, I encourage you to do it, just to gather some background information before you kind of jump in and, and look into everything. And that information will, will just kind of lay the context out for you and also help you get kind of a, a picture of why it was written and the, the bigger purpose of everything. And so before we jump into Colossians, uh, I want to do that. I want to give some background information. I also want to give us a, an outline of the book so we can see the big picture of where we're headed and what the main points are that Paul deals with in this letter. And so uh, the author of Colossians is Paul, and he wrote this letter uh, while he was in Rome in prison. Uh, and so the first time that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he actually wrote four letters. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, Philemon, and this letter to the Colossian church. And, you know, something I love about Paul is that he always made the most of the situations he was in. And I can just imagine, you know, you're, you're preaching the gospel in Rome and you're imprisoned for it, and you can kind of just go and have a pity party and being like, Lord, you know, I can't go out on my missionary journey now. I can't go and plant churches. I can't go and preach the gospel. I'm just stuck here in this prison cell. There's nothing I can do for you. But, but that wasn't Paul's mindset. It was like, okay, since I can't go out and do what I was doing, I'm going to minister to the churches that I can do uh, through letters that I'm going to write. And he writes four of the most profound letters that we have in the New Testament that over the centuries have impacted and encouraged uh, millions and millions of of people and so um, it's important to note that Colossae, the church there, it was not started by Paul. Many of the letters that Paul writes uh, to the churches that he writes to are, are churches that he planted and started, but this is not one of them. Um, it was actually started by a man named Epaphras. Now, in Acts chapter 19, Luke devotes the whole chapter to Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. It was the longest place that Paul spent anywhere in his church planting time, and we're told that as he's there in Ephesus and he establishes a church, he starts teaching in the school of Tyrannus, uh, and he's there for a couple years. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we're told the, the results of that time that Paul had there in Ephesus, and it says this, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia, speaking of Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul's ministry there in Ephesus was extremely powerful. People from all over Asia Minor were coming there to Ephesus, and they were listening to this man proclaim the good news of the gospel and teach God's word. And many people came to know Christ through that. And one of the people that came to Ephesus and heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul was this man named Epaphras. And not only does he hear the gospel, but he receives the gospel, and then he does what all of us should do when we receive the gospel. When he goes back home, which he was from Colossae, he starts preaching the gospel to the people in Colossae and a church is born from that. And so we have a church started there by Epaphras. And to understand what happens next, you really kind of have to have a little understanding of the history of the city of Colossae itself. And so as you can see from this map, Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. And it was at one point in time a major trade route of people, especially coming from India and China, traveling over west. Uh, and there were two other cities that kind of sprung up on this major trade route, Laodicea and Heropolis. And so you have these three cities now that are on this trade route. Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae, and because all these people keep traveling across there, these cities were quite predominant uh, and had a lot of things happening, but as time went on, Laodicea became a political center, Heropolis became a trade center, and Colossae kind of just faded into the background and went from a big city to kind of a, a small town. They were no longer significant anymore because those other two cities kind of gathered all the people for different purposes, um, and so Joseph Lightfoot says this, Colossae was the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter. Now, we just went through the book of Romans, which you could consider is the most important place that Paul wrote at the time that he wrote. It was, you know, the hub of everything, you know, Rome. 
but Colossae was a small little town. But the thing that I love is even though it might be a small, insignificant, unimportant town, Paul realized there are no such thing as insignificant, unimportant people. So he is going to write to these people. Now, Paul had never been to Colossae before, but when um, he's in Rome, he's in prison in Rome, Epaphras visits Paul and shares with him, you know what, we have problems here in the church in Colossae. There's been different uh, false teaching and, and heresy that, you know, the believers in Colossae are adopting and are being tempted to, to buy into. And so um, because of its location, being on this major trade route for years and years, you know, Colossae, like many other places around there, you know, they had a lot of different religious beliefs coming into their city because you have people traveling from, you know, China, from India, and also from the West. And, you know, they'd be coming from Rome, they'd be coming from Greece, and you know, they're all bringing different you know, religious-based ideas, different philosophical ideas, and then they, you know, many of them make that their home, and then they bring those ideas with them. And so as this church now you know, grows within this city, you have all these people with these different ideas that they've brought there that are, are, are there available to the Colossians. And as the Colossians are there and start, you know, buying into some of this stuff, many people have referred to the Colossian heresy as kind of a, the salad bar religion. Now, I'm sure that most of you have been to a salad bar where you can come up and you can put whatever you want on your salad. Now, if Jenny and I go to a salad bar, our salads look very different from one another. She's going to come up there and she's going to get that spinach, you know, lettuce that's super healthy and all those other greens that kind of look like you just mowed your grass and someone threw it on there for you. And, you know, and then she's going to put on top of that some healthy kind of vinegar-based dressing and lots of vegetables. And, you know, then I'm going to go to the salad bar. And the first thing I'm looking for is meat. Because if there's no meat on the salad, then for me, it's not worth eating. So I want meat first. And then the only lettuce that I'm putting on my salad is the really healthy iceberg lettuce that pretty much has no nutritional value, but it tastes really good. And then you know, I'll put a few vegetables and then pile some croutons and you know, meat and you know, add the, the really healthy branch dressing at the end of it all. But you know, when we come back to our table, you look at her salad and you look at my salad. They're, they're very different. We both have chosen to put different things on our plates. And you know what? This is something that a lot of people do spiritually. This is what was happening there in Colossians. You know, we're just going to take a little from this religion and then a little from this religion. And we'll take a bit from this philosophical belief system and from this philosophy over here. And, you know, we'll put it all together on a plate. And then we're going to say, this is what we believe. And so this was the struggle that people were having in Colossae, and we have the same issue today. You know, people today are doing the same thing, where it's like, hey, I'll pull a little from this belief system and a little from that, and, and kind of make it my own. But the big difference between us today in America and the time of Paul is it usually wasn't as individualistic as it is here in America. And so it wouldn't just be one person kind of going and picking and choosing. It'd be a group. You'd have a group of people saying, okay, we want to take this from, you know, uh, Greek philosophy and, and this from the, the Eastern mystics, and, and we'll take this from Judaism, and we'll take this from, you know, this pagan belief or whatever it is and we'll grab it all together and as a group we'll now invite people to join our new belief system and we have that today you have groups doing that where they'll kind of adopt different things and you know hey why don't you come join this new thing that we have going on that we've kind of you know made ourselves. But in America, we also have people who, you know what, they're individualistic. We, we like our own kind of thoughts and beliefs. And so you'll have people who will just do that themselves. They'll come around and, you know, okay, I'm going to grab from this religion. I'm going to grab from this philosophy. I'm going to take from this. And, and this is now my new belief system. And that's why you can go out and talk with 20 different people. And, you know, each one of them have some different religious concoction that they have come up with. And it's not the same for anybody else. And you just talk and you're like, you know, where did you get that? Well, I just kind of grab from here and then grab from there. And, you know, this is now what I believe. Now, the religious concoction that was coming into the Colossian church was taken from four main religious and philosophical belief systems. First, they were taking things from Eastern mysticism. 
And so, as I already said, you've got a lot of people. This trade route was bringing people from China, bringing people from India, and so Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot of mysticism was kind of coming into the area, and they were grabbing hold of some of these belief systems. And then ultimately, what we're going to see here in Colossae is they were taking this mystical idea that, you know, hey, these experiences, you need them to really be spiritual, and they're kind of abandoning absolute truth, that it's more about my experience and my feelings that really, you know, drive what's real or true versus an absolute source of truth like the Bible. And so this belief system brought into Colossae that experiential, that mystical way of looking at things that kind of abandon reality, abandon truth. And, you know, we definitely have this in our church world today. There's many different avenues in which this is coming out. One of the most popular in the church world today, uh, some of you are probably familiar with it. You might be familiar with some of the people who lead it and not even realize that they're a part of this. It's called the Emergent Church Movement. You know, and really, at the, the core of it, they kind of abandon absolute truth. Uh, one of the leaders of the Emergent Church Movement, who's very popular here in America, he said this, the Bible is a human product rather than the product of divine revelation. And everybody's interpretation is essentially his or her own. Notice what he's saying here, that the Bible is a human product rather than divine revelation. It's not inspired by God, and everybody's interpretation is essentially his or own opinion. So we all can come to it, look at it as we want, conclude what we want from it, and we all can be right, even though you'll be different than me, and you'll be different than me, and because there's no absolute truth that they ultimately hold to. You know, so this is something that we see uh, already in the Christian culture that we're in. Um, and so the second religious and philosophical belief system that the Colossian Church kind of adopted from was Greek philosophy. Now, the Greeks thought very highly of knowledge to the point where they really kind of worshipped knowledge and elevated man and knowledge to a place that only God belongs. And they believed that man really kind of could solve all the problems of existence through his own thought processes. Uh, the Greek philosopher Protagoras, he said, man is the measure of all things. And once you say a statement like that, there's really kind of no room for God in that. It's like, well, man's the measure of everything. Man's kind of at the pinnacle, at the center. He, he's everything, and the knowledge that he has is everything. And so the Greek philosophy moved God out of the equation and put man and his knowledge kind of at the, the center of it all. And this was something that the Colossian church was adopting, a man-based, man-centered you know, belief system that really kind of dethroned God and pushed him to the side. And once again, this is something that we definitely see in the church world today, that man and his knowledge has been exalted to a place where ultimately he's worshipped. He's been given a place where only God belongs. And we've dethroned the Lord and his position and his power and his authority in the process. You know, this is something that you see within the faith movement. The faith movement has exalted man and they have dethroned God. They have this claim that basically man through his faith can tell God what to do, uh, which basically puts man in control of God. But they love using these catchphrases like name it and claim it, believe it and receive it, blab it and grab it. But what they're saying is through your faith, you can get whatever you want from God. You want to be a millionaire, then you just tell God and he's going to give it to you. You want that brand new mansion, you tell God and he's going to give it to you. Well, now God's no longer the God who's sovereign and in control. He's this the genie that you have mastery over, and through your faith, you control him. And so through this, it's a very man-based mindset that dethrones the Lord and puts us in that role. You know, if you listen to a lot of worship that's been coming out in the last maybe 10 years, you'll realize as well, this is creeping into our worship. That a lot of worship songs are very man-centric. It's all about us. It's all about our knowledge. It's all about what we're going to do. It's me, me, me. Instead of about God and who he is and what he's done for us. And we just see, like, who is it that we're really worshiping in this song? And so we've seen this really creep in to the church world that we have today. The third religious and philosophical belief system that the Colossians took them from was Jewish legalism. 
Now, as we just finished our study through the book of Romans, we saw that you know, many people from that Judaistic religious belief system struggled with a works-based relationship with God, with this legalistic works-based concept of relating to God. And so, you know, this is something that was being adopted as well in the Colossian church where people started thinking, hey, you know what? The only way to be right with God, to have God love me, to have God accept me, to have salvation, is I have to work for his approval. I have to do these different things in order for that to happen. And so we're going to see in Colossians this letter here, Paul's going to be addressing that because that's something that these believers started to uh, accept. And this is probably the most common false belief system in the church world today. There are so many believers who feel like, I have to relate to God based on what I do. The only way he will love me, the only way he will accept me, the only way he will spend time with me, the only way he will save me is through something that I do for him. I have to work my way to that approval. But that goes completely against the gospel message. Because my salvation, my worth, my love from God, all these things are all wrapped up in my relationship with Jesus Christ. When you and I place our faith in Jesus, we have all these things, our salvation, all this comes through that. I don't have to earn it. Jesus earned it on my behalf. I just need to put my faith in what he has done. The fourth religious and philosophical belief system that the Colossians took things from was what was referred to as Gnosticism. Now, as you go through this letter, you'll realize that this is actually the belief system that the Colossians pull from the most. And so, yeah, they got some things from Eastern mysticism. They got them some things from Greek philosophy and, and a works-based legalism. But the most things that we're going to see here is coming from this belief system referred to as Gnosticism. And you know, Gnosticism is really one of the first heresies to enter into the early church once it was established. The Gnostics consider themselves to be people of superior knowledge who could help those who they considered lesser Christians to obtain a deeper spirituality through this knowledge that they could pass on to you. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, uh, which means to know, and an agnostic is one who does not know. They would say, we can't know there's a God, uh, that knowledge is beyond us. And many people in our culture, if you talk with them, what are you? They'll say, I'm an agnostic. Uh, and so the Gnostics were just the opposite of that. They say, hey, we, we do know. We know all sorts of things. Actually, we'll take it a step further. Um, we know what you don't know, and we want to help you know what you don't know. Uh, and if you just took your relationship with Jesus, and you add the superior knowledge that we have for you, man, then you would really be something. Part of the Gnostics' goal was to merge certain philosophical views with the Christian faith, and part of the motivation was so they could be accepted in the intellectual community uh, that they wanted. Hey, oh, we're so wise and full of knowledge, and you guys will kind of accept us if we you know, add this to the Christian faith. And they thought, you know, in the end, it will produce superior Christians. In Christianity, in which knowledge is the ultimate thing, and redemption is from ignorance, not from sin. And this was kind of the heart of Gnosticism, but what you need to be redeemed from is your lack of knowledge, not your sin. If you could just have more knowledge, then everything would be great for you, and so they kind of missed the whole foundation of what the Bible teaches. Now, Gnosticism also believed that the spirit alone is good and that matter is essentially evil. So matter being any substance, any material in the universe. So basically what they believe is that everything that was created was evil. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, actually, that has huge ramifications on some of the most foundational Christian doctrines that we believe. For instance, the doctrine of creation. If matter is evil, as they claim, and they say, well, wait a second, God could not create it. God's not going to create evil. And so they say, well, if matter is evil, then, then God is not the creator of everything, unlike what the Bible teaches. So they say God could not be involved in creation because he can't touch matter because matter is evil. And so they came up with this idea that God created thousands of lesser gods who got farther and farther from him until all of a sudden there was one God so far from him that he could touch the evil matter and create everything that there is today. Another major doctrine that Gnosticism comes against is the doctrine of Jesus being 100% God 
man, 100% man. You know, this is a vital thing that we believe as Christians. It has such huge ramifications to his ability to be one of us, to redeem us, to save us. And so we definitely believe that Jesus was 100% God, but also became 100% man as he dwelt among us and became one of us through the virgin birth. Well, the Gnostics would say, no, 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 Jesus couldn't be one of us. Why? Because we are matter, we are evil. And so there's no way that God could take on the form of evil. And so they say, Jesus never, the incarnation didn't happen. He actually didn't take on human flesh. Well, what is it? You know, people say they saw him. Well, what they saw was more of a phantom ghost-like figure. So yes, he was here on this earth, but he wasn't physically a human. He was just kind of a spiritual being that was here. And they even claimed that he wouldn't leave footprints when he walked. And, you know, that, that lovely poem that so many people love, of footprints in the sand. And it's like, you know, Lord, all my hard days, I look. And there's only one set of footprints where were you and the story says well that's when i carried you well they would say well i was always with you i just don't make footprints but you know that's the, the mindset that they have of you know he was just kind of this phantom ghost that goes around which denies that he truly was 100 man which denies his ability to redeem us which denies his ability to save us so a, a very problematic belief system but it also affected their ethical approach to life and here's where they even had debates uh, among themselves. There was kind of two different views of, okay, now since matter is evil and, you know, our bodies are evil, you know, what do we do with that? And so you had two groups. The first group suggested that, you know, we need a rigid life of self-denial. And so they would starve themselves. They would beat themselves. They would deny themselves as much as possible. And then the other group had the opposite view. They said, hey, you know what? Since our bodies are evil, then, you know what? Let's just live it out. You know, let's just sin all we want. You know, hey, then this is what we are anyway. So there's no problem with that. Uh, and so they would just indulge their flesh. Now, we have a lot of Gnostic ideas in the church world today, ideas that deny that God created everything. we got lots of ideas that try to deny the creation of God. We have ideas that deny who Jesus is, ideas that promote this self-loathing or the self-fulfillment. Uh, and so we see that rampant in the church world today as well. And so as you look at what was going on in Colossae, you see these four major areas in which they started drawing from Gnosticism, Eastern mysticism, Greek philosophy, and Jewish legalism. Don't just sit back and think like, well, that pertains to us in no way, shape, or form. Well, actually, it pertains to us very much. Because just like then, now we have all the same things combating the church world today. We are having these things trying to infiltrate the church world today. And so what Paul has to say about these issues is just as relevant now as it was to the church in Colossae a couple thousand years ago. Now, one of the most dangerous aspects of this false teaching, and it's something that false teachers, if they're good at what they do, they do this well, is that they take these false things and then they add it in a really convincing way to Christianity. It's not they just completely abandon what Christianity taught, completely abandon all the things that, you know, Epaphras brought and the Word of God brought and said, right now we're only going to be adopting from, you know, the mystics and, you know, the great philosophers and legalism and, and Gnosticism. No, 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 no. They, they kept this kind of uh, Christian, you know, umbrella that kind of grabbed things together and then they started bringing in other things that twisted and made things, you know, um, completely opposite of what the Bible intended them. And so, you know, they don't outright deny Jesus, but you know what they do? They dethrone him. Jesus has a place in their new belief system. He even has a place in the way that they view salvation, but he does not have the supreme place that the Bible gives to him. According to this new belief system that the Colossians were accepting, Jesus' death on the cross for us was not sufficient for salvation. So in dealing with these false doctrines and dealing with these heresies, Paul is going to bring us back to one major point. It's going to be the theme of this letter that comes up again and again and again. And that theme is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus has complete supremacy over all creation. Why? Because he is the creator of everything. He's the one who rules. He's the one who reigns. He's the one who has complete power and authority and sovereignty over everything. And Jesus is completely sufficient for all that we need. Who Jesus is, God, what he's done by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins is sufficient. It is enough to meet all of our needs. So we don't need more 
of who Jesus is. We don't need more of what he done. We don't need to add works as the Colossians were adopting that belief system. We don't need to add some you know, knowledge that someone's claiming that we have to have it, that only they have this secret knowledge. And we don't need to add that stuff because in Jesus, we are completely sufficient. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save you and to save me. The power of Jesus is completely sufficient to change us. It's sufficient to heal us. It's sufficient to direct us and to use us and to empower us. But just like in Paul's day, we got false doctrines coming into the church world with one major desire, and that is to undermine the supremacy and the sufficiency of who Jesus is and what he has done. So the church world today, we have adopted things from Eastern mysticism, from Greek philosophy, from legalism, from Gnosticism, all of it with the purpose, ultimately, of undermining the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Warren Wearsby, he writes this about this letter to the Colossians. The message of this letter is greatly needed today. I hear too many voices telling me that I need something more than Jesus Christ, some exciting experience, some new doctrine, some addition to my Christian experience. But Paul, Paul affirms that what I need is appropriation of what I already have in Christ. And you are complete in him. I also hear voices that want to judge me and rob me of the glorious liberty I have in Christ. How encouraging to hear Paul say, let no man beguile you, let no man spoil you, let no man judge you. The fullness of Christ is all that I need, and all man-made regulations and disciplines cannot replace the riches I have in God's Son. What Paul speaks of here in this letter is so relevant to what we deal with in the church world today, because unfortunately we have so many believers who have lost sight of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and they're starting to buy into lies that I need more, that Jesus isn't enough, that this experience is what I need, or I need to add to Jesus this thing or that thing, and they haven't come to the conclusion and the reality of no, all I need is Jesus, he is everything, he is completely sufficient for me, and he is the supreme ruler of all. In this letter, Paul speaks of Jesus as the absolute head of all creation, the absolute head of the church. You know, one of the ways that false teachers deceive people, one of the ways that they get into the church, because they don't come in with the name tag, I'm a false teacher, and, and they don't come in obvious and just, you know, hey, let me show you this really off-the-wall thing so you're clear that, hey, you're false. What they do is they try to take their false beliefs and attach it to Jesus. And then you start thinking, well, Jesus is a part of what you're saying, so it must be biblical, it must be true, it must be right. And they attach things to Jesus to try and deceive believers. It's Jesus plus this emphasis on a particular ministry. It's Jesus plus this false doctrine. It's Jesus plus this experience. It's Jesus plus this hyper-spirituality or supposed move of the Spirit. And then the things go on and on. It's Jesus plus these other things. For them, Jesus is not enough. It's always Jesus plus another understanding, another experience, another whatever. But Paul is going to teach us in this book that Jesus plus nothing. You have everything in Jesus. He is all that we need. Now, the book of Colossians isn't just significant because of what we're dealing with as the church and the church world and the attacks that are trying to undermine the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It also deals with things that we have in our culture that are happening that Paul addresses. Jack Arnold says this about Colossians. Many people say, is the Bible relevant to the problems of the modern world? Can it speak to us in an age of cults, cloning, and nuclear energy? Our modern technological society has produced depersonalization. Man is little more than a machine, but the book of Colossians is relevant to make us see we are persons created in the image of God. In an, image of in an age of pragmatism, when people no longer ask, is it true, but does it work, Colossians speaks. In an age of science, when we are delving into the areas of test tube babies and genetic engineering, Colossians speaks. In an age of immorality, infidelity, divorce, and homosexuality, Colossians speaks. In an age in which existence, not extinction, frightens people, Colossians speaks. 
Colossians is contemporary as the Iran-Contra scandal because it deals with the eternal truths which never change. Now, and I think this is an important quote for any book of the Bible, which we lose sight of the fact that even though it was written so long ago, it is eternal truths that don't change and is relevant to what's going on. But you're going to see as we go through this, the things that Paul is dealing with in the church there has problems with them. We're seeing the exact same things in our culture, and we can relate to those things. And what we're told is so important for us to understand. You know, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, because really, if you look at every single book of the Bible, there's 66 of them. There's really no book that exalts Jesus more than this one. And that's what I love. I mean, Jesus is the focus of it all. This is a constant exaltation of who Jesus is and what he's done. And all these different heresies, it comes back to who Jesus is and what he's done and exalting him and putting him back where he belongs on the throne as people keep trying to remove him from that place. It's been said, if you want to understand the true nature of Jesus, you should study the first chapter of John's gospel, the 19th chapter of Revelation, and the entire book of Colossians. If you have those three under your belt, you'll have a solid understanding of who Jesus is and what he desires to do in our world today. So the main theme of Colossians is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And the main purpose of this letter was to combat the errors, the heresies, the false doctrines that the Colossian believers started to adopt. And so Paul is writing to help them see, hey, no, this undermines the truth of who Jesus is. It undermines his supremacy and sufficiency. Uh, and so he's going to write to correct those things. So now that we've looked at some important background information, I want to give you our outline that we're going to be using as we study through this book. And there's really three main reasons that I like to give you an outline of a book as we start studying through it. First of all, it helps get the big picture. You, know, you look at an outline and you kind of see the bigger picture of the main things that the author deals with. And the second reason is because it shows you where we're headed. You know, as we're going verse by verse through books of the Bible, you can kind of see what's the next main thing that we're going to be covering and dealing with. But it also helps to remind us of where we've been. And so as we see this outline regularly and we think, oh, yeah, what was chapter one about again? Oh yeah, the outline reminds me of the main things that we addressed and looked at and hopefully will bring to your remembrance those things and continue to encourage you. Now, our outline of Colossians follows the main theme of the book, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And in this book, Paul deals with three major things, doctrine, danger, and duty. And these three main things are directly connected with Jesus' supremacy and his sufficiency. In chapter one, we have the doctrine of Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency declared in three different areas. It's first declared in the gospel of Jesus. Then it's declared in the redemption that Jesus' death has made possible to you and I. It's declared in all of Jesus' creation. It's declared in the church, which Jesus is the head. It's declared in the reconciliation that Jesus made possible by his death on the cross for us. And it's declared in Paul's ministry, which was given to him by Jesus, and the ministry was for Jesus. And so in all these six areas, we're going to see the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus declared in those different things. In chapter 2, we have the dangers that are coming against Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. And so in this chapter, Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency are defended against three areas of attack that were coming into the Colossian church, which also are coming into the church world today as well. They are defended against empty philosophies against religious legalism, and against false doctrines. In chapter 3 and 4, we have the duty for believers to live in a way that demonstrates Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. So in these two chapters, we're challenged to demonstrate Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency in six different important areas of life. In our purity, so the way that we personally live the Christian life, we should be demonstrating the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in our fellowship with other believers as times like this, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus should be seen as we get together in our family relationships between husband and wife, between parent and child, in our work as employees and also as employers, in our witness of Jesus to this lost world, and then finally in our service for Jesus in all sorts of different areas. 
So in this book, Paul's going to start with doctrine, as he so often does. Hey, this is what you need to know. You know, so often we jump to the end of books and like, I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. Well, don't jump to what you're supposed to do without first having the knowledge of what Paul's trying to start with. So first, you need to know things about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And then he's going to share with us about danger, what we need to be aware of that's trying to undermine the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Realize it's there. Don't get caught up into it. Don't buy into it. Don't believe it. And then he's going to share with us about the duty. What we need to do as believers in light of Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. So this letter has a lot of important things for us to know. It has a lot of important things for us to be aware of and warned about. And it has a lot of practical stuff for us to do. And I think it's going to be a great letter for us to study together. Now, Paul, as he so often does, he kind of starts with a quick introduction, which he does in this letter as well. The first two verses are really just an introduction. And then starting in verses 3 all the way to verse 12 is really where we have the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus declared in the gospel. And that's a great section, and I'm going to wait till next week since this introduction is long to really get into that. But I want to focus on, for the remainder of our time this morning, the, the introduction that Paul gives in verses 1 and 2. And so we'll conclude with looking at that. It says this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this letter, notice how Paul introduces himself. You know, this is a common thing that if you write it, you would put your name first to be, hey, this is coming from me. But he doesn't just say Paul. He says Paul, an apostle by the, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, the word apostle means a messenger, one sent forth with orders. But Paul, like 11 of Jesus' disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, they all were given this special apostolic role, a role of, of leadership in the early church, a role of, for many to write scripture that was you know, um, inspired by God. They just had a special role within the early church, and Paul was chosen by God to be in that specific role of helping lead and guide the early church. And... I think it's very important that Paul brings this up because, remember, he's writing to a church that he's never been to before. He's writing to a group of people that, for many of them, they don't know him, they might have heard of him, but you know, they haven't met him, they don't have a relationship with him. And if you've ever tried to correct someone when you don't have a relationship with them, when you don't know them, you probably find it oftentimes doesn't go so well. They kind of respond with, well, who do you think you are telling me this? I don't even know you. And so the fact that Paul is writing a letter, really of correction, a letter that's dealing with all these problems that are coming in, that you guys need to change, you guys need to stop believing this junk, you guys need to, to do this and this. And so he wants them to realize, I have the authority from God to write this to you, to declare these things to you, because my goal is that you would listen and apply. And you know what, as we look through any book of the Bible, this should be the realization for us as well, not who was the author, because it's kind of irrelevant, because the author ultimately is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's inspired whoever it was, from Moses to Paul. You know what, we, we shouldn't be like, well, well, Paul wrote this one, so I'll accept it, but Luke wrote that one, so I'm not so sure. And you know, no, the Holy Spirit inspired each one of these authors. All of it is God-inspired, and so we should always be in the place where we say, you know what, I am going to listen to what the Word of God says, and I'm going to apply what it says to my life. And I think this is part of the purpose of Paul wanting to emphasize he is an apostle, by the will of God, and an apostle of Jesus. And I think it's important that we see here that Paul shares the by the will of God. You know, when we're speaking about the will of God, or we're speaking about our will, you know, we're, we're talking about a choice, a desire, what one wishes to be done. And so Paul's saying, hey, I'm a, an apostle by the choice, by the desire of God. He is the one that chose this for me. I didn't choose it myself. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to be an apostle. I'm going to tell everyone I'm an apostle. And this is so great that I've made myself this great, wonderful thing. No, it's something that was God's will. It was something that God chose. It was something that God established, not Paul. So Paul was what he was, and he did what he did by the will of God. 
No, we hear this, we maybe read this because we see it in a lot of his introductions to letters, but sometimes maybe I don't think we pause to ponder that personally and for ourselves. Could we actually make the statement, I am what I am, and I do what I do by the will of God? That it's God's choice, that it's God's purpose, that it's God's plan, it's his will, not my own, for who I am and for what I do. This is such an important question for us to ponder and think about. You know, I found that a lot of Christians have an unbiblical concept that believes God's will for every Christian is to be in full-time ministry. You've got to be a pastor, you've got to be a full-time evangelist or missionary, you've got to be in some type of full-time ministry. That's the will of God for every single believer, which that's not biblical, that's not what the Bible teaches, but it's something that the church world adopted, and you know, it's led to a lot of void in the world today because there aren't as many people in fields that there should have been because they thought, you know what, I shouldn't be a teacher, or I shouldn't be a scientist, or I shouldn't be a doctor, or I shouldn't be a lawyer, or I shouldn't be a politician because, you know what, I'm a Christian, and the only thing Christians are supposed to do is be in full-time ministry, and so for all in full-time ministry, that's what's best. We've kind of avoided a lot of things that we should have been investing in and having a Christian influence in, and we missed it. And this is something where we see a lot of things coming out today that I believe it wouldn't have been that way if we had Christians in those fields making, being light like we've been talking about in salt in this world. So God's will is not for all of us to be in full-time ministry, but his desire is for all of us to minister but he has different areas, different ways in which that will happen. In your job, for example, is a great way for you to minister on behalf of the Lord. There are people in your job that me as a full-time person in ministry will never talk to, will never get an opportunity to be a light to, will never be a witness to, because my path is not going to cross theirs, but yet you are there from the Lord to put you in that place to be that witness to them. You can do it not only your job, in your home, in your community, at your school. There are so many different opportunities for us to minister on behalf of the Lord. But the key thing for us is to be and to do what God's will is for us to be and to do. And so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever come before the Lord and really asked, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? I mean, that should be a question that every single Christian sincerely asks the Lord. Have you ever done that? Where you sincerely stop? Because maybe you've already thought, well, well, this is what I am, and this is what I've been doing prior to accepting Christ. Well, now that you've accepted him, maybe it's time to take this moment and say, Lord, is this the actual path that you want me to continue on? Is this what you want me to do with the rest of my life? What is it that you want for me? What is your will for my life? That should be a question that we are sincerely asking. Could you say like Paul did, I am what I am, and I do what I do by the will of God. It's his choice for me. It's not my choice for me. He is the one who's done this, and I'm following what he says. You know, something that I really struggled with early on in my life was my dad was, and still, you know, he's a pastor, and, you know, something that I struggled with was just watching the fact that, you know, ministry for him was hard, but also it was hard for us because we grew up without much money, and my brother and I would talk about, you know, when we get older, we're going to get high-paying jobs, and we're no longer going to be poor, and, and that was both of our minds, since we're never going to be in ministry, we're going to be in something that actually makes us money, but the only problem is, you know, I hadn't asked God what he wanted me to do with my life, I just kind of came up with my own thoughts, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to pursue, and then, you know, in my junior year is when I really get saved, accept Christ, and all of a sudden, in my senior year of high school, I asked this question, maybe not really wanting the answer, Lord, what is it you want me to do with my life? Because I already have this plan, and I'm going to go make some money. You know, I'm no longer going to be poor. This is going to be great. And I really felt confident the Lord was saying, I want you to go into full-time ministry. And that is not what I wanted to hear. I fought that for a while. I was like, Lord, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You know, I grew up in that. I know what that brings. I want this over here. And I was challenged now with, am I going to pursue my own will, my own desires that I had from a younger boy now to, you know, someone about to graduate high school, or am I going to submit to the will that God has for my life? You see, all of us have to make that choice. Whose will are we going to follow? And, you know, many times when we're doing our own thing for so long, it can be very difficult to stop and realize, you know what? This isn't what God wants. 
Now I'm going to have to make some big changes to stop what I'm doing and pursue something else that the Lord ultimately has for me. Now, one of the main problems that many people have with making this choice is the only will that they're familiar with is their own. They don't know God's will. Why? Because they don't know God's word. And this is something that I think is so important because sometimes we want like this real specific answer from God. Lord, do you want me to go be a, a missionary over in some you know, foreign country or whatever? And it's very specific for you. But you know, if you study through the Bible, you will find over and over again, God has a general clear will for every single follower of him that goes across every relationship that we have. So you don't have to wonder, mm, how am I supposed to live in my marriage? No, God covers that. How am I supposed to be a parent? No, he covers that. How am I supposed to live towards those who are ungodly and lost? Oh, covers that. What about enemies? No, I got that too. And so there's all these things we're not left with. I'm not sure what God wants in this area. No, he covers the general things. And if believers would just actually even deal with that and live that out, when God says, hey, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, that you would do this, if we would just put the general will of God into practice, how different the body of Christ would be and how much more effective we would be. But I find if we'll actually do the general will, then when we're wanting more specifics, then when we're saying, Lord, you know, is it that you're calling me to another country or another place or another city, that as I'm now in his will generally, I'm much more open and receptive to his will more specifically, but we really have to get into the word of God. But we're not going to know the will of God for our life. So Paul starts his letter, he introduces himself, and I think this important way, for a group that did not know him. And then he goes on to say, and Timothy, our brother. Another thing I think is important to note about Paul is whenever you see Paul doing ministry, he's always got someone younger in the faith right alongside of him that he's discipling, that he's investing in, that he's allowing to join him in ministry, give him opportunities for ministry, and see the Lord work through that person And Paul is investing in. So he comes to churches, and he preaches, and he starts, and he plants, but he also said, you know what, I want to disciple. I want to really invest in different people. And at this point in time in Paul's life, the man that he chose to take under his wing and to really pour into is this man named Timothy. And I think this is so important that you and I would have at least one Paul in our life. Someone who is pouring into us, someone who is investing in us, someone who is more mature in the Lord than we are. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to be older than you, but they need to be probably older than you in Christ and more mature that can invest in you. And then we also need, and it's healthy to have, a Timothy. You'll have someone that you see that you're more mature in the Lord and that you can pour into them, that you can bring them into your life, disciple them, invest in them, and just share what you know with them. And I have found if you find Timothys and you bring them into your life, it's a great challenge to you to live your life the way you should because you realize the example now that you're setting, and it also challenges you with a lot more time in the Word of God because this person's probably going to come and ask you questions. You know, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that passage? And maybe you've never read it or thought about it, and now you're challenged because you're like, well, I want to invest in this person. I want to encourage this person, and I need to go study that. I need to go read these things. And so it's a, it's a healthy thing for us to have those people in our life that we're investing in that way. And the great thing about discipleship is it has this wonderful chain reaction when done biblically. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know what I love about this is Paul, he invests in Timothy with the purpose of Timothy now turning on and investing in someone else who will then turn around and invest in someone else. And it has this knock-on reality. It's like, I'm not just investing in you to build you up. I'm investing in you so that you can turn around and also now invest in someone else in such a way that they can turn around and invest in someone else. And so my first initial investment can have a knock-on effect of 10, 15, 20, who knows how many people if each individual continues to disciple others the way in which they were discipled. You know, Jesus is a great example of this. We so often read the stories of him feeding multitudes and multitudes of people coming to him and he heals them and he preaches to them. But you know what? In Jesus' ministry, when it came to true discipleship, he wasn't discipling the masses. He discipled 12 men. He spent most of his time living and discipling 12 different individuals. And you know what those 12 individuals were able to do? They went out and they, look at what the book of Acts shares. I mean, look at the impact that they were making on the world around them. And they were going and making disciples who were making disciples who were making disciples. And so many people were reached through that. You know, Jesus' last words before he left this earth 
were this. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice the last thing that Jesus says. He could have said anything before he departs. And his challenge for his followers was this. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's what I want. Don't just preach the gospel, which is a great thing to do, but also make disciples, which is more than just proclaiming the good news. It's actually investing in those who actually accept it. It's pouring into them and helping them grow. William Hendrickson, he writes this about the impacts the early church had in their disciple-making. The rapid progress of the gospel in the early days has ever been the amazement of the historian. Justin Martyr, about the middle of the second century, wrote, There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, by whatever appellation of manners they may be, distinguished, however, ignorance of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgiving are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. Half a century later, Tertullian adds, We are but of yesterday, and yet... We, are already we already fill your cities, islands, camps, your palace, senates, and forum. We have left you only your temples. R.H. Glover states, On the basis of all the data available, it has been estimated by the close, of the, uh, close sorry, of the apostolic period, the total number of Christians discipled had reached half a million. And this is amazing to think, in the lifetime of the apostles, they were already you know, middle-aged men when Jesus left them for this great mission, so they didn't have that many more years to go. And in that time, 30 maybe years, we have 500,000 people discipled, starting with those 12 and look at what happened from that. It's such an amazing thing, and it's something that the world today is in desperate need of. We need to be making disciples. We need those who are getting saved to be invested in, so they can go and invest in others, and to see a huge discipleship like we saw in the early church as well. So I encourage you, if you haven't already, seek out someone to pour into, seek out someone to invest in, seek out someone to disciple. So after Paul introduced himself and Timothy, he tells us who the letters to, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae. You know, the word saint here means to be set apart for God. And over the years, there's been this false concept that to be a saint, you have to, you know, be super spiritual and you have to do certain things that kind of attain you sainthood. And only a few people are ever going to really be worthy of that. But the way that someone becomes a saint is by being set apart in their relationship with God. And you don't get that through works. You don't get that through something that you attain. You get that in one way and one way only, and that is putting your faith in the work that Jesus has done. That's what sets us apart. And so who are saints? Every single person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. We are set apart because of the work that Jesus has done for us, not because of some work that I'm going to do better than you, and all of a sudden I'm going to be a saint and you're not because I'm better than you are. No, that's not how it is. We become that when we place our faith in what Jesus has done for us. And so all these believers there in Colossae are saints. Paul finishes his introduction by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very common introduction that Paul uses. It addresses two very common things that two groups would say, both the Jewish group and the Greek group. Grace uh, is the Greek word charis, which means to, what's a common uh, Greek uh, greeting, and then peace was the Hebrew word shalom, and that was a common greeting among the Jews. And together, really, you kind of have the heart of the gospel, which I think is a great way to introduce things, because grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor. And you only get it because of God's grace and acceptance of Jesus Christ. Peace the tranquil state of a soul assured of his salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with his earthly lot of whatever sort it is. 
So in this introduction, Paul, he's revealing, hey, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And even in that is a statement of recognizing Jesus' as supremacy and sufficiency. You know what? I'm not who I am because I've made myself this. I am following the will of the man that I have made, master of my life. Jesus is supreme to me. He is sufficient to me. And that is why I live the way I live for him. And so even in his statement of who he is, we see the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And Paul, a man who's investing in others, Timothy, an encouragement for us to do the same. And then he ends this great challenge and or just great statement of grace and peace that is from God to them. So as we continue to study through this letter in the months to come, we're going to see this very important reality, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus declared in so many ways, defended in so many ways, and ultimately demonstrated the way that we should be living it out. And so it's going to be a challenging book, an encouraging book, and one that I would encourage you, if you can this week, it's not very long, it's only four chapters, I think it's great just to get a big picture. Just read it all. If you can read it all at one time, I would encourage you. But if you need to break it up throughout the week to get through it all, that's fine. But I would encourage you, go through it. And whenever you're studying a book for yourself, I would encourage you as well. It's great to just start, you know, without trying to stop and get all the, the intricacies of what's being said, just to read it through to get more of the big picture of what's happening. And so I would encourage you to read through the letter this week and come next week. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 12, so you can really emphasize that in your reading. And we'll see what the Lord has to share with us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. So grateful we don't have to add to you. That you are enough, that you are everything, that you truly are supreme, and you are sufficient. We are grateful that you have done all the work. You have made everything possible for us. And I pray that you would help us as we go through this letter, Lord, to really get a deeper grasp of who you are, of what you've done, and how that should influence and impact the way in which we live. Lord, this world needs to see who Jesus is. They need to see that you truly are supreme, that you are sufficient to meet all of their needs, that you are truly what they do need, even though they might not recognize that they need you. They do. And I pray that you would help us as the church, Lord, to just be the witness that we're supposed to be, the light, to be the salt, to be your ambassadors, to be able, through the way in which we live, to demonstrate the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and how you can save, can change, can bring peace, can use us to do great things. Lord, I pray that our lives would be a shining example of who you are to a world that is in desperate need of it, Lord. And so I just ask that um, you would help us, Lord, even as we look at Paul and we see that he says he is what he is and does what he does because of your will. Lord, I pray for us that that would be something that we could actually say. And then if this morning there are people who are thinking, you know what, no, I'm not doing what God wants, I'm doing what I want, Lord, I pray that you would move in hearts. Lord, that we'd be willing to change anything that is not what you have for us, any direction that is not where you want us to be going, that we would truly be submissive and obedient to you in every area of our life, that we would want to follow your will, not our own. And I pray that if there is uh, an ignorance to your will, that we're not sure of what you have in different areas, Lord, that you would just direct us, that you would reveal what your will is, and that we would then be willing to follow that and to see the amazing things that you can and will do as we give our life to you. So we just ask as we come to another week, we go back to work, or with our families and our friends and our neighbors going to school. Lord, help us to put these things in the practice. Help us to live for you. Help us to be able to reach people in the areas in which you have blessed us with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.